Now, the University of Sunderland recently announced uh, that it is closing its history department because only 14 people applied to study the subject this year. Now, if you know something about the study of history, you know that it has been declining, actually, in, around the world, even now. It's an interesting um, sociological question. But if the study of history is declining, uh, it's declining at air level, and it's declining among university students, some believe it's because people want to study something that provides a direct route into employment. Uh, I don't know what a direct route is. I remember my first uh, director when I joined government as a young economist actually studied history at Bristol. And uh, last time I checked, he's been doing very, very well. So I don't know what a direct route to employment is. But that's what some people believe, that you know, other subjects like engineering and so forth provide such direct route rather than history. And the truth, of course, is that many of us who studied history at school most likely found it hard going. <laughs> you had to memorize deaths and lists of queens and kings who ruled during a period that, frankly, you can't imagine, right? And I am guessing at one point you may have asked that you were studying history. Personally, I enjoyed studying history when I was at university. Uh, but when I was at doing my A-levels, and I wanted to study it at university, but I couldn't uh, for other reasons. But I am guessing that one of the reasons that you, you, as, as you, are, you are studying history, you must have wondered to yourself, you know, you must have asked, what's the point of all of this? Why are we studying history, right? Uh, for many people, history is just a random um, collection of events, really. It's, it's just a random succession of events. And I think that's one of the reasons people struggle with studying history. Uh, most people find history boring because many of us do not think that the history of the world is leading anywhere. We tend to look at human history as purposeless and without direction. But you see, as followers of Jesus, um, the history of the world should interest you. It should fascinate you, actually. Uh, I could make a good theological case, I think, for why you should be interested in studying history and you should be fascinated by it. Because the reason is simple. History should fascinate us because history is his story. It is God's story. Human history begins in eternity, doesn't it? When God chose his people and will end in eternity where we'll be with Christ forever. That's Starts from eternity, ends in eternity, and we are in between, aren't we? We are living now in between two eternities, we might say. We are living in that period, human period, finite human history period. And during this in between two eternities, our Lord is coming back in glory, and we'll be with Him forever. But before He comes back, the Bible says there are things that will precede his coming. So yes, we, the Lord could come anytime, interesting enough, but the Bible also tells us that there will be signs leading up to his coming just before uh, he shows up, as it were. And this morning, we, well, actually, we've been spending time throughout Mark 13 looking at some of these issues, and this morning particularly, we looked at one of the things that believers will witness before Jesus returns we looked at that in verse 14. And one of the things we, we, we should expect to see before Jesus returns is the dawn 
of the Antichrist. We looked at that in verse 14. It says, Mark 13, verse 14, But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, I, it turns out I spent 50 minutes on verse 14 this morning. I checked, and I'm not going to repeat that. I'm sure you're very happy that I won't repeat that. But just to remind you, all that 50 minutes really said two things, right? <laughs> it said this. First, this verse is describing a man of sin who will appear to desecrate the church of God before Christ returns. I appreciate as you sit here looking at that verse, you are, and you, you are not here this morning, you are probably puzzled by that, but uh, just trust me on that. I think we spent 50 minutes to demonstrate that. Secondly, we noted that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world. So we must remain faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this evening, I want us to continue exploring verse 14 to 23 by looking at what it teaches us about the implications of the future coming of Antichrist. So he's already, his spirit is already here in the world, but he'll come in the bodily form, and verse 14 there is about that. But what I want us to do in the next two sermons is just to explore what that will mean for followers of Jesus and the world at large. There are two things we expect to see when Antichrist appears on the world stage. The first thing is that we must expect to see great suffering. Verse 14 to verse 20 is really about that. The second thing we'll look at, we'll look at that next week, is that we should expect to see great spiritual chaos. Verse 21 to verse 23 uh, makes that point. This evening, as I said, I want us to focus on the suffering in verse 14 to verse 20. Let me just read that again. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his clock. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, whom he chose, for the... For, let me just read that again. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, we can summarize those verses really in one sentence. And I like to do this often, and it's an exercise I encourage you to have. When you read a passage of scripture, try and assess what is the big truth it's trying to communicate. That just helps you before you get into, this, into detail. And I think what this passage is teaching us in one sentence is simply this. The dawn of the Antichrist will lead to suffering and devastation on a scale that the world and the church has never experienced before. The dawn of the Antichrist will lead to suffering 
and devastation, desolation, on a scale that the world and the church has never experienced before. That's the main truth I just want to unpack for us this evening. Now Job said, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. Job was reminding us that everyone suffers, including people of God. To be human is to suffer. We cannot escape it. And we have seen this in the news with those people on those cruise ships who are now stranded off Japan. One minute, they were enjoying life and never had it so good. Very rich, I'm sure, to get on one of those things, right? The next minute, what was a luxury cruise ship has turned into a prison. They can't live. They're imprisoned there. For all the money they have, they can't get out. Why do human beings suffer so much? Why is life not pain-free? Well, because human beings are powerless beings living in a world gone bad. As you sit here this evening, you probably think you are pretty much in control of your life. But the reality of the world is that you are not. You are at the mercy of forces around you in a fallen world. You see, we suffer because the world God created perfect is infected by the virus of our sin. When sin walked into our lives in Eden, suffering followed behind. Now, you know this truth already. You know that. We all know that. It seems obvious. It's obvious to us. All of us here have suffered, are probably suffering, and we will suffer. So we know that. But what Jesus is reminding us here that adds to your existing body of knowledge is this. Jesus in these verses is reminding us something we don't want to hear. It is this. Our suffering is going to get worse. Verse 19 particularly underlines that. For in those days to come, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Jesus is saying the immediate impact of this man of sin, this man of lawlessness, this antichrist that John also talks about, this man who causes desolation that Daniel prophesied about, is that when this man enters the world stage, he will make following Jesus in the world a very, very infinitely painful experience. We will suffer for Jesus when he shows up. Now, as we have noted already, the, the partial fulfillment of those words in verse 14 to verse 14, verse 14 to 19 were partially fulfilled in AD 70 uh, when the future emperor Titus destroyed Jerusalem. We know that was the partial fulfillment and we discussed that this morning. And this is why when you come to this passage, right, you see that though Jesus' words ultimately point to the end of the age, they are spoken also with people living in Jerusalem in mind because Jesus' prophetic words are aimed at two audiences. They are aimed at disciples listening to him and followers of Jesus that may experience AD 70, but he's also looking beyond the horizon 
So he's using words that captures both senses, if you like, both things, both things in mind. That's why Jerusalem is mentioned here. Let's read verse 14 to 18 again. Just remind ourselves. It goes on to say there, this is the end of verse 14, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetops not go down. On housetops, those housetops were, if you like, the roofs were flat uh, during the time of Jesus. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not go back to take his clock. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. It actually, AD 70, happened in the summer. That's an important point to note. But Jesus is saying, pray that it wouldn't happen in the winter. Why? Because during the winter season, for the first partial fulfillment, it would have been very difficult. The roads are impassable, aren't they? And so Jesus reminded his disciples to pray that it would not happen during winter time. And, and, and of course, when AD 70 came, as I said, it happened in the summer time. Clearly, they prayed and the Lord answered that prayer. But remember, it was a partial fulfillment for the reason that I set out this morning. If you like, as I said, Jesus is speaking here with these two time periods in mind. Yes, AD 70, he had that in view, perhaps. But beyond that, he's looking to the end of the age. So when we read these words such as flee to the mountains, uh, those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, we, we should not understand what Jesus is saying as saying that the last Antichrist will necessarily appear in Jerusalem and that we should run for the hills. No. That detail related more to the partial fulfillment in AD 70. In the final fulfillment, the man of sin will bring destruction of the scale and intensity that the world has never experienced before. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be, and never will be, period. Jesus is warning his followers that one day you may experience a great deal of suffering during the period known as the Great Tribulation when the Antichrist appears. Now, we know, I mean, if we're going through what we did this morning, the question we have to ask, why are we confident that the Antichrist is the one who's going to bring about this suffering? When this suffering perhaps comes from God himself just judging the world, there is that element, yes. But we know that specifically here Jesus is talking about the suffering that the Antichrist will inflict on believers. Why? Because other parts of the Bible tells us. And by the way, Daniel 11 31 to 37 also tells us. You can study that in your own time. But I want to just take you to another passage that makes this point, And that's in Revelation 13, verse 1 to 10. Turn with me to Revelation 13, and verse 1 to 10. It's easy to get there. It's the last book of the Bible. And it is chapter 13. Now, John here has a vision of the man of sin, the beast, who will be worshipped by the whole world. And he tells us this. Now remember something about the beast, by the way, what we said this morning, is that the beast is not Satan. Uh, the beast is a man controlled by Satan. There's a sort of uh, satanic trinitarian thing going on in Revelation, where Satan gives power to the beast, 
and the beast gives power, if you like, to this prophet. Uh, it's an interesting point the way Satan tries to mimic uh, the Trinity in Revelation. But we are in Revelation 13, verse 1 to 10. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, and with ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on his herds. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, the dragon who you should understand as Satan who has given power to the beast here. For he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. And also he was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Again, Daniel 11 might help you in that. And he was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Interesting enough, that Trinitarian worship again. Um, we, we are getting a sense of that with the dragon being worshipped, the beast now being worshipped as a sort of second in command. Everyone whose name who will worship it, all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. John's vision concerning this man who's worshipped by the whole world has never happened before, as I've said. It will happen in the future. Any idea of even thinking that's some sort of Roman uh, emperor type thing, well, we just say, well, that is a partial fulfillment. We can accept that. But we know that John here has something bigger, something ultimate, where the entire world is being worshipping this person. Mark and Revelation are teaching us the same truth. Let's flick back to Mark. Well, the words of Jesus and the words of John, which are the words of Jesus, right, in Revelation, are teaching us the same truth. And the truth is, all followers of Jesus must expect to go through the great tribulation if it comes in our lifetime. It is important you understand that Jesus never says we will be kept from suffering. Only the devil does that. Jesus never promises that any follower of Jesus will at any time be kept from suffering. Quite the opposite. 
just before this section in Mark, in verse 12 to verse 13, which we looked at two weeks ago, Jesus says we should expect to die for him. Brothers who put father to death and vice versa. So, and that, and by the way, that fits in with what we've been learning in Mark. Mark is teaching us that true discipleship means death to self. Following Jesus, we must be prepared to die for him. That's what Mark 8, verse 34 to 38 teaches us. Following Jesus means following to his death and suffering. To become, as Paul prayed, to become like him in death, so to speak. And Jesus here is being honest with us. He's saying, following me may mean life, will mean life getting worse for you. You may suffer physically. You may even, and your suffering may, may, may get worse, and it may even become very terrible if Antichrist appears in your lifetime. We need to pause and take that in. Because I know this truth I've just said is hard for many of us to accept. Even as I speak, I know there is a queue of YouTube videos, I'm sure, out there. There's a queue of teachers, prominent teachers. In many of them, that probably would tell you that we will escape the tribulation. But beloved, you must understand that that is false. And I understand why we are tempted to believe this theology of escape. One reason we're tempted to believe it is that the Bible says that the tribulation is indeed an act of God's judgment. And when we read passages in the Bible of people like Noah and Lot who were rescued from God's judgment, I understand that we also expect to be spared, don't we? But we must understand, beloved, that those passages that show people of God being kept from God's punishment are meant to point us to safety from final judgment, as we've been discussing in our Bible study. There is nowhere in the Bible where we are promised that believers will be kept from suffering at the hands of Antichrist when he appears. Nowhere. Not a single verse. Now, someone may say, are you sure? What about Paul's words to the church at Thessalonica? Does it not speak of a rapture of some sort? Well, let's go there. First Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 18. A much quoted passage of the Bible. First Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 18. It says this. Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica says this, but we do not want you to be an informed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Will bring with him those who are falling asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will, will not proceed those who are falling asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. It's a descending, right? And as he's descending from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, 
and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who will be alive at that time, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Just spend the time to be, keep rereading those words and keep asking the Lord, tell me what is the big idea here? And as you keep rereading these words, it will become immediately clear that a plain reading of these words simply says, when Jesus Christ is descending, when Jesus Christ is coming, at the end of the age, those who are alive at the time will meet him in the air to welcome him and live with him. That's all it says. That's all it says. No rapture, as we're told, by sound. And here is the key point. The word meet the Lord in the air is also in two other places in the Bible. In Matthew 25, verse 6, and in Acts 28, verse 15. And guess what? In both places, it refers to a meeting in which people go out to meet the dignitary and walk coming back to the place where they were coming from. That's the usage of that word. So we'll meet the Lord in the air. Why? Because we are going to welcome him and we'll bring him with us. Because the Lord is descending. It's like, just, it's like opening the door and letting him in and saying, here's the living room. That's how the usage of that word is in the scriptures. So no, beloved, no escape from the great tribulation. The Bible is clear both in Revelation 13, Mark 13, Daniel 11, that believers will see the great tribulation start with their eyes and suffer through under it. That is the whole point of Jesus giving us these words. It is to prepare us. Why else would Jesus warn us that it's coming if we're going to escape? So, again, we must ask ourselves, isn't it? Because we have learned this truth here, briefly, more brief than this in the morning. But the truth here we have learned from these verses is that the dawn of the Antichrist will bring great suffering for believers. And us, if we are alive, then we will experience that. There is simply no biblical basis for being raptured anywhere at any time. There is no theology of escape. And what Jesus says is consistent with what we've been learning in Mark so far. So, as I asked this yesterday, well, not yesterday, it feels like yesterday. As I asked, <laughs> as I asked this morning, the question is, what are we supposed to do with this information? Fair enough, the dawn of the Antichrist will bring great suffering, but so, what does that mean? I mean, I might not even be alive then. What am I supposed to do with that? Today, why do I need to know that now? Well, I think there are four important lessons, just briefly, that we should draw from what Jesus has taught us so far. And it is this, lesson number one. First of all, let us be thankful to God that we have a Savior who is honest to us through and through. You know, Jesus never hides painful truth from us. He says plainly in verse 23, but be on the guard. I have told you all things beforehand. He's not hiding 
anything. Jesus is giving us a realistic picture of life. You know, there are some people who think the Bible has sort of been doctored and, uh, doctored and, and done to tell a certain kind of story that fits in with certain ideological facts. People believe that they are skeptical by the scriptures. But as you open the Bible, as you begin to read it for yourself, as you begin to hear Jesus say, you realize Jesus, well, Jesus is not trying to build a big crowd. He's just trying to tell the truth. He's telling us as it is. The Bible is real. Jesus' words are plain truth. He is already telling you that, look, following him will mean great suffering for you when the Antichrist comes. But it is worth it following him, following Jesus. Jesus is not trying to hide any nasty truths about the future. Because he's honest. He's trustworthy. And so if you are trusting in Jesus this evening, you can be sure that Jesus is not hiding anything from you that you need to know and is actually good for you. It's not like how we are like parents sometimes, you know, we are hiding something that, you know, we don't want to tell the kids. We know it's good for them, but we just, you know. Sometimes we are like that. We don't behave as we should be behaving, right? But Jesus is a wonderful parent and to us, and, and, and he's honest. Right now. He says, this is how it is. It doesn't hide anything from us. And so, you can thank God that in Jesus, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, you can thank God that in Jesus you have a God who is straight up, who is honest with you. And thanking Jesus for his honesty means trusting him with all your fears about the future. Jesus is honest with you, beloved, when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Trust him in that. He is being honest. And thanking Jesus for his honesty and trustworthiness means trusting the word of God, the Bible. It is completely true. So keep trusting his word and keep reading it. That's the first thing we should be doing. We should be thankful to God that you are the honest Savior. The second practical direction this passage gives us is that it encourages us is that these verses teach us that if we trust in Jesus, we do not need to worry about our future, our future suffering, because God is in control. Look at verse 20 there again. I just glanced at it. We hadn't properly looked at it. Verse 20 says, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, now what Jesus is saying there is, is that God has set the tribulation period in such a way that his chosen people, the church of Jesus Christ, will be saved or kept in Christ. Now, we'll say more about that in a minute, but the key point Jesus is making is that God is in charge of the future of his people. No one in this room, no one in the world knows when Antichrist will appear. Even Antichrist doesn't know why, because we read in 2 Thessalonians that he's being currently restrained until God decides to move the restraining order placed on him, he will not appear. So even he doesn't know when is time. We know he's, he's getting stronger in the world. His spirit is getting stronger in the world. But he doesn't know when you appear. No one does. 
Only God does. But if you belong to Jesus, as I said, you know who does. You know this God, isn't it? Because both Jesus and Daniel are telling us that the God of the Bible is the Lord of history. He looks upon the future as history already written. The past, present, and future to God, they are at a single point. It all happens. To, it's already happened. It will happen. But he sees everything. God has already determined what will happen. Now, I know that is a shocking claim to make. It's a shocking claim to make not only about God, but it's also about the nature of reality. Because Jesus is telling us that the world does not run itself. It is not a book of chance. It is a world where God writes all the events as its author. The world is not run by some law of karma either. It is our God, a personal God, who is actively shaping all human history for his glory. So the action of that is you have no need to worry about whatever you're experiencing in life. Whatever suffering you are facing, whether now or the Antichrist imaging tomorrow, none of it will surprise God. He's already seen it. And in Christ, you know this God. That's a big point. You know this God. This God who knows the future is your God in Christ. So put your worries aside because God owns your future. That's the second practical direction, isn't it? So first practical direction, be thankful to God that you are the honest Savior. Second one, put your worries aside because God owns your future. The third practical direction is this. Keep remembering that you are chosen in Christ. Whatever suffering you experience, keep remembering that you are a follower of Jesus because God has chosen you in Christ. Look at verse 20 again. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. The word served there, by the way, is better understood as endurance. Do you remember in verse 13, Jesus had already told us, whoever endures to the end will be saved. And we've said that in Christ, we have this threefold salvation. We were saved, we are saved, and we will be, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And Jesus here is talking about salvation in the future. He's saying that whoever endures to the end, so to speak, will be saved. In verse 20, Jesus is saying that God has set the suffering period in such a way that his chosen people, the church, will endure it. And listen to me, we will be better for it. That's important. Because we might wonder, why let us go through the great tribulation? Well, we'll go through the great tribulation because this limited time of testing for the elect of God is something actually good for our devotion to Christ. I haven't just made that up as a general theological point in the scriptures. Of course, it's there in the scripture, right? But it's actually relevant. It's actually there in relation to this event when we turn to Daniel 11, verse 31 to 35. You can flick, if you flick back to Daniel 11, verse 31 to 35, I just, we read that passage in the morning and uh, it's... We are getting to know Daniel today, aren't we? So um, let's remind ourselves in Daniel, 
Um, you've got Isaiah, you've got Jeremiah, you've got Ezekiel, and you've got uh, Daniel uh, there. Daniel 11, verse 31 to 35. We read this this morning. We're just going to read those uh, six verses. And he's talking about the first, he's uh, talking about this king of the north. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. We explained that this morning. And you shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame by captivity and plunder. By the way, notice the word captivity there. We picked that up in Revelation 13 not long ago when we were reading that. Verse 34. When they stumble, they shall receive a little L, and they shall join themselves them to the, they shall join themselves to them with flattery. And listen to verse 35. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white. Until the end of the time. For it still awaits the appointed time. I believe the word stumble there really is what verse 33 says. Notice what he says there. Though for some days they shall stumble. What does stumbling mean? By sword and flame and by captivity and plunder. But what is the purpose of this stumbling? Verse 35 makes it clear. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be purified refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. That period, this welcome party, that will welcome Jesus at that time, that's a privilege they will have. Part of that being ready to welcome Christ in the flesh, as it were, being caught up with Christ, is that God will take them through this period of purification. Therefore, the purification turns out, this sanctification period turns out to be indeed Though theory to be indeed something that is a blessing, a privilege to suffer for Christ. So, some people say, of course, we choose God out of our willpower, don't they? But Jesus has made it clear in verse 20 that God chooses us. He takes all the steps to reach out to us. We must keep remembering that in face of whatever suffering we experience. We must remember that human beings cannot choose God because all of us are sinners sprinting away at rapid pace from God. We don't want God in of ourselves. But the good news is that even before humanity rebelled against God, if you are trusting in Jesus, God had already chosen you for himself in Christ. If you belong to Jesus, your life with God has been in the making before the universe began. You are the reason why Jesus came on earth. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus came to turn God's choice of you into reality. To bring you home to God as a chosen member of his family. As a precious bride of Jesus Christ. God chose you not because of anything that you have done. You did not even exist when he chose you. It is a pure sovereign act of God. 
And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 to verse 29, it says this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It is God who has chosen you. So this is what salvation means. What is salvation? Salvation is being among the chosen people of God. And this is not something we do. It is something God has done for us in Christ by His grace alone. Even the faith that we have is a gift from Him. And beloved, I'm emphasizing this point, especially in this context of suffering now and the suffering to come when the Antichrist appears. We need to remember that. Why? Because God's choice of you is your security for the future. No matter what life brings, if you have surrendered to Jesus, God will keep you. It doesn't depend on you at all. If you are a follower of Jesus, you must rest in this truth. Your life is not subject to chance. You are part of God's great eternal plan. You are the most precious creation in the universe. Why? Because God has set his eyes on you and has made you his chosen bride even before you were created. And most importantly, beloved, God's choice of you is not like human choices. God has not chosen you by mistake. Sometimes we feel like we are in Christ by mistake. Am I really here? No, God chose you in Christ. Not by mistake, by purpose. You know, a couple of years ago, a criminal in the USA was released from prison 90 years too soon. Uh, Lima had been sentenced for 98 years, right, in the state of Colorado. But due to a clerical error, he was released back to normal life. Just after eight years. <laughs> he must have thought Christmas has come too early. And of course, when he came out, he started rebuilding his life. He was so thankful. Uh, he became skilled in installing windows. Uh, he even reconnected with his former girlfriend and got married. And he became very active in the local church. Then one day, the police knocked on the door. The police said, sorry, we made a mistake. You have 90 more years to serve in prison. And of course, that was the end of his future. Uh, he was chosen for a moment by mistake. Beloved, that's not how God chooses us. God never makes mistakes. If you belong to him, you belong to him because God wants you to be with him. Regardless of what sin you have committed in the past, present, and future, if you are trusting in Jesus, you are chosen forever in him. And God wants you to face any suffering today and any future suffering that the Antichrist may bring if he appears tomorrow, or day after, or whenever he appears in your lifetime. He wants you to face that with confidence. He wants you to face that knowing you are chosen in Christ. He wants you to remember that whatever suffering you are facing or you will experience in the future, 
You are loved by God. And that nothing, not even the appearance of the Antichrist, can separate you from God's love. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, isn't it? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. All that God has started in your life, it will surely finish to the end. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. God is working out his beautiful plan in your life in accordance with these great purposes. And you know, when you are alone, and when those doubts come, when you stumble in some sin, you start asking yourself, maybe I'm suffering because I'm not being faithful to God. Or I'm not being faithful to God, or I'm not really chosen by God. When you are tempted to make your life with Jesus to be about what you do rather than what he has done. We, we all have that moment, don't we? Well, there's only one place for you to look. Look to the cross of Jesus. The cross is God's letter written with his own blood. It declares on the cross right there when Jesus cried out, it is finished. It is God declaring that he has chosen you and the work is already done in Christ. The cross says to you, because you are chosen, you don't have to end your place before God. Your place is already sealed with the precious blood of Jesus. So that's the third thing. Keep remembering that you're chosen in Christ. And the final quick thing, it is this. Let this passage direct you to keep praying. Keep praying. Jesus encourages us here to pray. A very bold prayer. I was so shocked when I read Jesus' words here. Because they are prayer that are really getting to the, to the mystery of what prayer is, to the, to the mystery of who God is. Look at verse 18. Pray that it may not happen in winter. Jesus has just taught us God has determined history. And here we are getting the mystery of prayer. God causes all things, but he's saying pray. The God who never changes his plans, his eternal decrees, is saying, I will respond to you. Even his eternal decrees account, his eternal decree accounts for your prayer. Jesus is encouraging us here to pray to God, to listen. Have you noticed what the prayer is for? This is a prayer you may hear about quite a lot in some churches. Because it's a prayer here to lessen suffering. As reformed people, we don't like talking about lessening suffering. We just want to take it on the chain. We think that's for the prosperity gospel. But this is a prayer to lessen suffering in the tribulation. Don't miss that in this 18. Pray that it may not, be, may not happen in winter. I've already said. That is praying that it may not, the suffering may not be too great. That's essentially what Jesus means. And you know what? What is true for the tribulation is true for all suffering in our lives. Is there some trial you are currently facing? Stay on your knees. Keep bringing it to God. Jesus, the Lord of glory, believes in the power of prayer. What more comfort do you need, beloved? He who is fully God and fully man is telling us there is power in prayer. And we know at least this prayer was answered partially because the, 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 the partial fulfillment didn't happen in winter. It happened in the summer. Jesus, who's all-knowing, is saying to you today, Pray about your future. That's the other way we can read verse 18. Pray about your future. Pray that God would make your future not too hard for you to bear. That's, a, that's an important, that sounds like not a very faithful prayer, is it? But it's actually a biblical prayer. 
God loves you. And he said, pray. You can pray the Lord, please. I mean, make it easier tomorrow at work. Beloved, Jesus would not encourage you to pray like that if he has God would not listen. He is the one who listens to your prayers. And he's encouraging you to pray because he's the God who listens to his people. So whatever suffering you're facing, whether it is opposition from the spirit of the Antichrist in the world today, or general suffering, God to God in prayer. So those are the four things I just want you to leave you with. Be thankful to God that you have a honest Savior. One, to put your worries aside because God owns your future. Three, keep remembering that you're chosen in Christ. And finally, keep praying to God to lessen suffering in your life. Well, next Sunday we'll look at how the coming of the Antichrist will bring spiritual delusion and how we should prepare for it. We'll look at verse 21 to verse 23.